Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Good evening, and welcome to A Word in Your Ear. Um, if you haven't been before, you may, you may have heard that our motto is we start early and we finish early. <laughs> and this motto is, is so spread around town that it's the only gig in town where the audience turn up expectantly 15 minutes before it's due to start. And uh, we actually did one with Danny Baker not long ago, where Danny sat on the stage and the audience were in. He started about 20 minutes before the starting time, didn't he? Yeah. He just couldn't stop him at all. He just kept going for the next two hours. Uh, this one will be slightly more restrained than that. My name's David Hepworth. On my right here is Mark Ellen. Uh, and this is, is a kind of inheritance of the late, some say lamented, Word magazine, which used to do these uh, occasional events, which proved popular, and we've continued to do them, and, and to podcast the results, which have also been very popular. So you're, you're also, you're all part of something very special here this evening. <laughs> and I'm, I'm delighted to say that... Um, we're here to mark the publication, I suppose, of, uh, of a fantastic new biography of, of Sandy Denny, and we're joined by the author Mick Houghton, but we've also got two, no less than two, founder members of the group with which she is so memorably identified, Fairport Convention. Uh, those are Simon Nicol and Ashley Hutchins. Would you please welcome all three of them? Okay, now to try and put some structure on this, uh, gentlemen, I've actually teed everybody up to know what roughly what we're going to talk about in roughly in what kind of order. But we can take all kinds of uh, detours if we like. Uh, but I want to start in the year 1965. Okay, in in, in the swinging 60s, before anybody knew that they were swinging, before they any were... of these people were born. Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> of course. Ingratiating himself yeah, already. Yeah. <laughs> and before we go any further, I'd just like to say how nice it is to be back on stage with my dad. <laughs> <laughs> so, 1965, pop music, oh rock and roll, and so forth. And, and folk, for many people, is, is a fairly distant you know, whisper at that stage. And I just wanted to go through everybody and get an idea of where you were 
what you were doing in the year 1965. Starting with you, Simon. Well, I was in my, uh, would have been my fourth year at secondary school. Um, I'd already endowed myself with the guitar due to the pester power I applied to my parents. Um, my elder sister had a boyfriend who also had a guitar, and he uh, he showed me the rudimentary chords, you know, three or four chords, but uh, it was just a, a, a kind of adolescent boy interest. However, um, I'd already, by this time in 65, after having this guitar for a couple of years, I had inveigled myself into Ashley's little black book, oh, right. where I still remain, because Ashley, uh, being... Are you three or four years? Four years older than me. Three and a half years older than me. Um, I know he doesn't look it, but you know, it's, it's not the age; it's the mileage, people. <laughs> uh, uh, he was at the time running a sequence, a succession of bands which played in our North London area. Uh, every youth club, every church hall, every bar mitzvah, every wedding. And they, bowling alley, yeah, bowling alleys, uh, everything. Anywhere where there was a stage, and he hadn't at that time um, found a clear single musical direction. So his bands varied in personnel and in musical approach. Uh, everything from you know down home, you know, urban and indeed rural American blues. Uh, his abiding interest in Robert Johnson and all that stuff, you know, Lightning Hopkins and all the way through, uh, was a big influence on him at the time. But, you know, he just, he was always in my bloody youth club on Friday night with some band or another. And because uh, by this point I was a bit older and I'd had a job in the summer cleaning cars for a garage and saved up money and bought myself a 12 string guitar because that's. I don't know why, but it just appealed to me because it had more knobs on it, I suppose. Um, and so I, I had a... Even though I couldn't play it, I would occasionally take it to the youth club, you know, to show off my rudimentary talents. Uh, and because I was a, tw a possessor rather than a player of a 12-string guitar, uh, I entered his black book. And when the occasion demanded for a bit of simple chord work... In, uh, I remember a particular jug band called the Ethnic Shuffle Orchestra. With, uh, I don't think we we shared anybody in that uh, with later developments, did we? It was various other people, you know, from your other sides, other pages of your black book. But I don't think Richard ever played in it, for instance. No, no, he didn't. No. No. But that was sort of like very strongly influenced by Jim Queskin on his jug band. And in its later stages, uh, it embraced some of the repertoire of like-minded bands. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of the Loving Spoonful here in their very early days because they drew on that as a major influence on them, and we liked that. So that was how it started. Anyway, I was still at school, um, which I left during my O-levels when I was 15, uh, out of complete lack of interest in matters academic and uh, threw myself into his embrace, I suppose, really, <laughs> in his you know, sense of being a, you know, an, an indolent, 
long-haired, late-sleeping adolescent. <laughs> so, 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 actually, you were living in the same, the same area, and this is, what, yeah. Muswell Hill? Are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, Muswell Hill. Yeah. Okay. I was a Muswell Hillbilly. He was from Bounds Green. Oh, really? Sorry, yes. Mm. Right down market. Poor end of the road. Well, on the other hand, he did, his house did overlook <laughs> the wonderful yawning expanse of Durnsford Road playing fields and the wonderful swimming pool there. Right. And three doors up was his magnificent, unique neighbour... Dr. Bruce Lacey. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. By yes. which many many tale could Absolutely. be appended. So, so Ashley, so okay. you're, you're slightly older than Simon. We've established we've, we've that, and I feel we're going to return to that <laughs> regularly. <laughs> we are. I can't talk to my dad like that. <laughs> uh, but you're yeah. the man with the little black book, and yeah, you're, yeah. you're kind of putting together the bands. What you're working at the time, or are you a student? Yeah, or? no, I was a journalist. I left school uh, also. At you know, as soon as I could, 16 years old. And I was contemplating recently that Richard Thompson, Simon Nicholl and I never went on to higher education, which probably explains why we write so well, we speak so well, uh, and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, but anyway, uh, no, I was a journalist, a trainee journalist, and then a journalist by 65. And... Um, I had the little black book. I nowadays have about ten very big black books, but I've always done that. I've always kind of, you know, contacted musicians. And uh, if you ask me what I do, or uh, you know, in the list of well, singer, songwriter, bass player, all this kind of stuff, I put band leader first. Right. Band leader, and then Svengali. <laughs> yes. So you, yes. <laughs> so you were looking round for, for yeah, likely yeah. talent. Were yeah, you? Yes, I was, and 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 you know he's done himself down there. He was a fabulous guitarist <laughs> right from early teens. It's been downhill know. ever since. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Um, so that's what I was doing. But I was also travelling around in London taking in absolutely every kind of music I could. So, you know, it would be everything from John Cage and uh, uh, more conventional classical music at the Royal Festival Hall and places like that. It was blues clubs, R&B clubs, many blues clubs. And um, it was jazz, Ronnie Scott, so we go to Ronnie Scott as a, as a teenager. But also it was folk music clubs. And uh, I think a lot of people imagine that we didn't find folk music until Sandy joined us. And then eventually, obviously, Swarbrick. But we all knew about folk music, and we went to folk clubs, and I went to as many as possible from, from one end, the very traditional, like Ewan McColl's Singers Club I went to a number of times, right through to um, The Cousins in Soho, which was, uh, which was a great uh, club. It's Les Cousins, but everyone called it The Cousins. And um, 65, I tell you what I saw in 65 in The Cousins... I saw Paul Simon, top of the bill, supported by Bert Yanch, Phil Oakes, one of my great heroes, American songwriter, Danny Kalb, who was a lead guitarist in the Blues Project from New York. Uh, this is just in the little folk club. And uh, Simon went on, on uh, not this Simon, Paul Simon, went on stage finally. And the first thing he said was, I've just had a phone call from America and um, they've put Fender guitars on Sounds of Silence and we've just gone to number one. <laughs> did you believe it? We did believe him, actually, because of, of the quality. And, you know, people told the truth in those days. <laughs> like, like how dreadful the, 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 the post... 
a dish post-production drum track is. You know, <laughs> <on that sort laughs> nowhere yeah. near the rhythm. You know? There's a lovely bit in the book where somebody's talking about Paul Simon playing a troubadour, I think, and says, the next time I saw him, he had his own aeroplane. Actually, you that, remember? Was, that, yeah. that was Sandy's dad. Oh, that was Sandy's dad. Oh, uh, right, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That so was, there must be a little bit of tension there. So, yeah. so that's what Ashley was doing in 1965. So what about you, Mick? Well, You're a mere child compared Well, actually, no. I was at the same year of school as, as Simon. Um, but... I, I was from South London, which meant that, I mean, Muswell Hill might as well have been in Glasgow, for all I knew, because you never went any further north than Charing Cross, probably. Um, and I've never played guitar, and I still have never played guitar. Very um, wise. I think, um, I think I wanted to be a disc jockey. Can you believe that? I, I used right. to, I used no to, shame in that. No shame in that. But, um, I mean, I've been a pop music <coughs> fanatic since I was about eight years old. And I was talking to Mark about this earlier. I mean, I had two older sisters, which was very fortunate because they had boyfriends. And the elder elder sister had a boyfriend who had all the Elvis tenantures and Buddy Holly records and Rick Nelson records. The the one in between um, was into trad jazz. So I actually went to trad jazz clubs when I was about 12, I guess. And, And I think... Probably got a sense of the similar experience to, to folk music, but but by and large, I, I just love pop music, and my and I loved American pop music, which meant I loved Elvis in the sixties, early sixties, and Roy Orbison and the Four Seasons. Um, I mean, stuff like that. And, and then the Beatles happened, and the Stones happened. And if you were, as I was, thirteen years old then, you couldn't but get swept along by this whole thing. But you didn't really forge your own taste in music. And I think that kind of happened for me in 1965 because, in a way, that's when... It sounds awful, uh, but in the book I I kind of talk about the year that folk went pop, which was 1965. But it did, you know, because Dylan Dylan had hits, Joan Baez, um, the the birds, I mean, the birds, Mr. Tambourine Man. And and then over here you had people like Donovan and Marianne Faithful. And the Seekers. Let's let's not forget oh, yeah. the Seekers, who um, Australians will tell you a very a daggy. That's the word I think. Right, yeah, right. But you know, Seekers had two number one albums in 1965, and um, and Judith is still a fantastic singer. A great singer. She's got a beautiful great voice. Singer. Wasn't 1965 also the year that Bob Dylan did two live two concerts on the BBC? He did. That were shown did. late on a Saturday night. Which I which I remember watching and uh, and probably taping off the telly with the microphone in front, <laughs> yeah. you know, with my mum coming in and saying, do you want a cup of tea? And say, shut up, shut up. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but um, what I remember most in 1965 was transcribing the lyrics to Subterranean Homesick Blues, right. and it took days, probably. <laughs> Didn't the video help? <laughs> no, this was, this was the... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have the technology that you had. But the, no, but the thing was, I transcribed it, and then I looked at it, and I barely understood it, because it was a completely different language. But, and then you kind of realise that there was this whole other culture in America. And, and in a way, I think that 65 was really important to me, because that was the year, I think... I think, one, it was the year that the Americans struck back because they'd put up with the Beatles and the Stones and the British invasion. The Brits are coming! Yeah, and suddenly the Americans were back with the birds and the loving spoonful. And all this great stuff that followed that, that um, you know, the, the great contemporary writers like Tom Paxton and Phil Oakes and the, the Jefferson Airplane and so on. And um, so, yeah, so I think 
in, in a way, it, it was the year I discovered folk music. And also, not, in, not British folk music, because British folk music still meant, yep. you know, Robin Hall and Jimmy McGregor. <laughs> or, or as indeed... Mr. Richard Thompson said, "Rambling Sid Rumpo." <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, so b- moving on. So, where does Fairport Fairport Convention enter your life, Simon? Well, it, it just was a, you know, a name change. Effectively, the band that uh, I was, you know, first weaned into with Ashley, which kept changing its name, and included by that point Richard. Um, and then Judy, and then you know a succession of well a couple of drummers. Anyway, it just we had we weren't completely satisfied with the name. And a friend of mine from round the corner came up with calling it. Why don't you call it Fairport Convention? Because that's where you rehearse and where you all come together and convene. And it just had the right kind of euphony for the time of of you know society at that time. I mean, people said so. Oh, it's just like a reflection of Jefferson Airplane because the same number of syllables and you know <laughs> that sort of thing. But that wasn't a deliberate ploy. It just it just kind of fitted. So we, it wasn't a big thing for us to change our name and do a gig. But that happened on the twenty seventh of May, nineteen sixty seven. Right. So that was, that was, was it the, the, the gig. I don't know, but I'd like to paint a picture if go I on. may. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I, I've got a book as well as um, <laughs> Mick. <laughs> And very lovely. It's already both. sold out. So. Yeah, I know. I've got the field to myself. How lucky am I? Um, but it's a selection of uh, my writings over the years. What I think is the be- my best writing. So it's poetry. There's song lyrics and there's album sleeve notes. And I tend to write album sleeve notes. It's a bit different to what is expected. And when uh, Universal Island, thank you very much. Well, oh yeah, that will great. Um, Small charge later. When uh, Universal Island re-released the first Fairport album, and, and indeed all the first four albums in the beginning of the 2000s, um, they asked me would I write some sleeve notes. Uh, there were never sleeve notes on the original albums. And I wrote this about that time in Fairport, and maybe this paints a picture, throws us back in time, especially there's quite a few younger people here. What we wore... Pollock-style paint-splattered shirts, fringed jackets, scarves various, dark velvet, boots with the heels worn down, voluminous hair. What we read, Spike Milligan, George Melly, Henry Miller, James Joyce, Thomas Pynchon, French symbolist poetry. What we listened to, Coltrane, Isla, Kurt, John Cage, Barbaroli, conducting Vaughan Williams, Ewan McColl. Paul Butterfield's Blues Band, Doc Watson, Leonard Cohen, Joni Mitchell, Tim Hardin, The Left Bank, The Birds, Dylan, of course. What we consumed, the best water ices and lemon teas from marine ices in Chalk Farm. (laughs) Danone yoghurt, very rare in those days. Exotic breads from Golders Green, free food parcels from Kingsley. What we believed in, nothing we could be sure of. What we saw, Muswell Hill Broadway and Fortis Green Road, free of clogging traffic. Subtitled French films at Hampstead's Everyman Cinema, Jimi Hendrix, Close Up. All-nighter music clubs and milkmen starting their morning rounds, heads smoking a lot of dope, the inside of many an old BBC radio studio, 
the inside of an old van. What we rarely saw, money, (laughs) violence, bad trips, good PA equipment, expensively dressed citizens, musical competitiveness, unpredictable weather. What we played, the best of the singer-songwriters, music of almost suicidal variety, (laughs) mind-bogglingly complicated arrangements of ostensibly simple songs, anything that took our collective fancy, anything that other groups wouldn't touch. What we did to pass the time, (coughs) sketched, painted and doodled, wandered the streets of London north of the river on foot, picked our spots, attended sundry music clubs like Cook's Ferry Inn, The Hundred Club, The Marquee, acted like human blotting paper. What we experienced, the best years of our lives, the most colourful and creative period of British history, discounting the Elizabethans. Because I have to say, Muswell Hill has changed in many respects, but every time I drive down Fortis Green, I still see the Fairport sign outside the house. Still there? Yeah, still there. Unbelievably, yes, it survived the, the wrecking ball, considering that uh, the patch of land it sits upon uh, and that whole surrounding area is owned by the estate of the Duke of Westminster and uh, the lease expired, the lease that my father had. Um, during our time there, he came there... Um, in 1948, having been demobbed from the RAF, uh, started his medical practice there, and we lived upstairs um, until we moved out shortly before he died. Uh, but uh, that lease came to its end in 1990. No, when did it come to its end? Because we, we, we it was, oh, it was in 468. Yeah, it was. It was shortly thereafter. And I assumed that uh, nobody would be able to afford, but it was just before the housing bubble happened. And somebody must have moved in and, and taken it on for another 99 years, because it, although the building itself is of interest in the um, limited field of arts and craft architectural study, um, and it features in some of those sort of arcane, you know, agri- uh, uh, architectural sort of specialist books um, as I say the value of the land is, is pretty vast yeah well anyway it's still there yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, so Mick when did Fairpoint Convention enter your life um, probably in 1967 I, I, I saw Fairpoint the line up with Judy probably three times I, mean, I think at the Marquee and, and a couple of times at Middle Earth but um, the thing I always thought about Fairport was that they were Unlike all the bands, you know, that one had kind of grown up with in the sixties, like the Kinks and the Beatles and so on, they were actually three or four years younger, and that, that kind of made a big difference. So you, you were my age as a band. You were my age. You seemed to have my entire record collection. Uh, actually, you had the record collection I really wanted. You know, you played this record collection. I mean, I could merely listen to it, but these guys played it, um, and um, I think. I think seeing you live as well, the, the one thing that really stood out was was that, that was the the boy girl dynamic that, with with Judy and Ian. It um, was very rare. Sorry to chip in, but 
in those days, it was very, very rare to have a woman, a female, in the band, in a band singing. Very rare. You count them on one hand, the, fe- the females who were singing around Britain, presumably why around the circus. the female as, as the English Jefferson yeah. Airplane. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Slack Absolutely. observation, which is a, a wrong right. if, if a girl was Blame on, Tommy Vance, I believe. Yeah, that's what it was. If a girl was on stage, she, she, would, she would be the name. She would be a soloist. And she might have a band, but they would only be sort of vaguely referenced. Yeah. You know, but this was a band this which different. included yeah. as I an mean, equal member. Yeah. I mean, the other thing about Fairport, I mean, I didn't know this at the time, but it was obvious. It, when, I was, when I was thinking about this writing the book, is that Fairport had no prehistory. I mean, all the other groups that kind of came along in 67 or 68... Well, if you they, saw my school reports, you'd understand. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but you hadn't been in some dodgy band that had had three singles released by EMI in 1965. <laughs> you know, you had no recording history. And the, the only other groups I can think of that kind of, in a way, fitted the same, you know, the same idea were were probably Soft Machine and, and the original Pink Floyd. And, you, you, and, and there's a lovely quote from Ashley about the adventurousness of youth that there's something about that fairport lineup where kind of anything goes it was anything goes you know you, you could fearless you know, fearless. stupidly fearless, fearless. <laughs> yes yeah. Yeah. i mean fearless in a way that our english cricketers no longer are because, <laughs> because just lost to bangladesh no they don't quite do blithely ignorant like we do <laughs> everyone talks about fearless cricket but you were fearless you were a fearless band you know you you uh, and that i think well. I was so was much older then, I'm, I'm younger than that now. <laughs> can I? That was very good, yeah, so much right. Um, um, I'll, can I ask a question about, which is a fascinating bit in the book, about the idea of the underground, in that the folk groups, the three big folk groups at the time, Steel Ice Band, the Fairball Convention, and Pentacle, were all deliberately positioned as kind of part of the underground, which really fascinated me. And I never really dawned on me, actually, until I read the book, because because in the case of uh, Pentangle and and, um, and Steel Ice Band, I think it was Joe Lustig was the manager. And I suppose would, in your case, it would have been Joe Boyd. But they were all keen to take these groups off the folk circuit yeah. in order to break well, into a bigger market. And uh, if they that, were being that, marketed as a folk, <laughs> as a folk group, I mean, rather than a folk that's part of the underground. And, you know, so therefore you've got a situation where... Um, you know, groups be playing with the, with the Pink Floyd at the UFO Club, um, members of the String yeah. Band, and um, you know, it, it just made people like me, and I was about what, mid-teens or whatever when you, when you happened, made me look at you completely differently. Yeah, I mean, I th- it's a really yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think the big era. difference is that Fairport weren't a folk band then. No, no I mean, we weren't. Pen- Pentangle were, or the, the individuals were. were. Yeah, the Incredible String Band were. So I mean, Joe did take the Incredible String Band out of the folk clubs. Joe Lustig took. Pentangle, you know, he steered them away from, them yeah. away from <laughs> their but, previous history. So stopped them yeah. playing folk. But in a way, we, you, we, you, we, you never, never, we never had band. any background yeah. in it, as, as Ashley said. It was one of the, um, as growing up individually, um, every pub in every sort of sizable, you know, boozer on a corner in North London and all over London that had a back room or a large upstairs room would have music in it all the bloody time. You know, it, there was none of this health and safety stuff, and you just turned up and you gave them three and a tanny and you went in. And it was one night it would have been, you know, wild free jazz. The next night it would have been somebody with his finger in the ear, you know, and everything in between. Yeah. Yeah. So we had been exposed to folk music, but we weren't... When we started playing together, it was, it was far from our minds to sort of focus on, oh, well, let's do a version of, you know, Black Waterside or, you know, Sweet Primroses yeah. or something. It was just one of our background influences that didn't really come out I mean 
we were exposed to it, we weren't new to it, but it didn't really come out on the first album at all. There's no sort of, you know, even covert reference to a, a traditional melody or a, a traditional themed song. That was only really brought to the fore by having to meet Sandy on Middle Ground as soon as she joined the band, and we had about ten days before our first gig, so, so- we... Let's talk about that. that. That takes us to the next point. You know, when did when did Sandy first enter the picture, as far as you were concerned? Uh, at the audition, at the five foot four feathers. Well, she doesn't. Did she say to you, you "I want to hear <laughs> something from you first"? Too. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, it's it, uh, my friend who's just sold out of his books, <laughs> leaving leaving the field free for me <laughs> at the end. Uh, in, in his book, which is a wonderful book, actually, seriously, it's a great read, um, there is a very detailed account of uh, the audition in which uh, uh, Sandy appeared. And um, there's a, a, a reference from Simon, which I think has now gone into history, and probably all the books, <laughs> which would you like to... No, I, I, I'm not disowning it. I just think it's very badly expressed. Well, say it again. But I'm because just, it just, is a, to it's describe a, how different she was yeah. uh, in, in every, every way from the other sort of 10 or 11 girls we'd seen um, during that hectic period, uh, was I said for some reason she, she stood out to me like a clean glass in a sink full of dirty dishes. But she was that different. And, and these guys are so polite, even now. I desperately wanted to know who else auditioned. I'm just going to ask that and very they, question. They would, they, oh, they, they, they so much. So, Julie oh, Felix, remember. you turned it down. No, 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 you're it's, it's all lost <laughs> in the mists of our, of time. I mean, the whole thing, polite, well-brought-up, middle-class. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, that's a good point, because, you know, we were very well-behaved, and Sandy, Sandy breezed in, and instead of us auditioning her, she auditioned us. She took over completely and said, yeah. you're right, you play me something. So I can hear if you're good enough for me to join you, kind of thing. I did know her by her, her, you know, her reputation preceded her in a small way, but I'd never seen her or had the the opportunity to see her perform. And she was just a name in the background, and I sort of bracketed her in my my mind with the sort of Alex Campbell, Noel Murphy kind of group. And she'd made an album, hadn't she? She, she, she? Well, she had, but again, I'd we not been exposed to that. You don't no, have no, no. We, we, we're all the same. It wasn't just Simon. Yeah. Simon, it was all of us. We didn't really know her. Yeah. Boy, we did soon. So, <laughs> so can you remember what you sang, what she sang, first of all, nope. when you, when no, you did this? No, no, I can't. No, you right. sang, actually, she sang, I believe, right. You Never Wanted Me, a Jackson Brown song. And well, you, and you uh, did Jackson um, Frank. Sorry, Jackson <laughs> Frank song, sorry. Yeah. And you did... Um, Morning, uh, Tim Buckley's song. Morning, Morning Glory. Glory. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. It's all in the book. Yeah, it would have made sense. Yeah. But, what was uh, your impression of her, though? Of, 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 the, of the background she came from, the kind of singer she was, the person she no, was? No, just it, I, I, as I say, I had no knowledge of her background or previous form, but I was uh, very impressed by her confidence, and yet, you know, even then, she was hinting at the fragility, which was always beneath the surface. Um, and just her, you know, her amazing, you know, room-enhancing personality. And what about her voice? Oh, well, I'm taking that as read. I mean, yes. yeah, yeah. I mean, last Tuesday, or whenever it was, we did this uh, similar thing with Mick at the, the Troubadour with Joe Boyd sitting where Ashley is now. Um, they'd unearthed a, a high-quality... German video, Fotheringay, 
just three songs from their repertoire. And uh, it was very well shot and beautifully recorded. And it was just a live version, no kind of chit-chat or anything. Very sombre, because the material was all that way. But uh, the quality of her voice is just, I mean, astonishing when you haven't heard it for a while. And this is a good recording, and it's fresh stuff you've not heard before. And it's just so... It's perfect, you know. It's a live performance by a band that's obviously rehearsed up and on song. But it was much more than that, because it was her telling her own stories and her own songs in this amazing voice. Yeah, I mean, which she she always had even when she'd got a stinking cold like she did in Sailor's <laughs> Life yeah you know when we did that live she was in a vocal booth and it was like by the time we'd done two like done a run through and then two takes you know there was just a sea of Kleenex tissues on the floor <laughs> you know <laughs> she was really suffering but she still had uh, this unstoppable power in her voice and an extraordinary uh, uh, way of making Contemporary songs sound really old, I think, and really marinated in history. Well, that's it... certainly um, one of the big strengths of, of Legion Leaf, and, and was our intention was to blur that line and to take old songs, make them new, and take new songs and discard, smuggle them past you as, as old yeah. things, like, like, you know, Crazy Man Michael, for instance, which remains in Fairport's repertoire to this very day. Did you meet her parents? I just thought it was so interesting. There's a big section about her parents and how a lot of her rebellion appears to be slightly rebelling against her parents. Her parents didn't want her to go uh, into folk music particularly, I don't think. They, yeah, uh, I mean... I, I, we thought folk music was considered to be uh, rather a kind of... Uh, you know, uh, well, it's a den of, it's a den of iniquity. Den of iniquity yeah. Exactly. I mean, I mean, I think one of the things that I think the book does do is actually paint her parents in a, in a much more supportive light. I mean... I'm sure the last thing they wanted was her to become a singer, but um, but they didn't stand in a way. And, and um, I mean, her dad bought her a guitar, piano, tape recorder. I mean, I think I think they were surprisingly supportive. I mean, I, I mean, I spoke to a couple of her school friends who who more or less said that you know their mum and dad would not have let her go to art school because art school was just. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beyond the pale. Beyond yeah. the pale. Yeah. Yeah. Arts, sixty-five. Um, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> so um, no daughter of mine. But um, <laughs> but but you know that's. But you know you you use the phrase unstoppable, but she was unstoppable. I think she was somebody that, having made her mind up to do something, and um, again one of the other things that comes out of the book is that she was actually singing in folk clubs, when she was about sixteen. You know, so from about nineteen sixty-three, sixty-four onwards. Um, but so she had the confidence to do it, didn't she? Even quite young, to stand up in a folk club or wherever. Yeah, and, she still. I mean, command as, the attention. Yeah, she kind of had to be. Yeah, and the, the to people do it, who but, no, the people but, who under whose influence she was fallen at the time, people like Noel Murphy and yeah, and to, would Ralph McTell have been part of that circle? I think at that he was. Time? A, he was a bit later. I mm, think a little bit later, so. but they would have all been. Very supportive of yeah. her. I mean, the extraordinary thing it was as well with her is that she was writing songs, and but so when she was eighteen, you know, she, you know, Jackson C. Frank, I'll get it right this time, was her boyfriend. But she was, you know, he was in the house with Paul Simon. She already knew John Remborn because he'd been at Kingston Art School. She was hanging out with Burton John and Jackson and Paul Simon and. Um, <coughs> She was already writing songs at this point, so to be to, to be eighteen and to be, you know, sharing that experience with 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 
with with essentially the first. I mean, I, I mean, I still think Bert was the first British singer-songwriter almost because nobody. You listen to Bert's first album, and it's there's three or four self-written songs. Um, I mean, Jackson's album is almost entirely self-written. But and and she was hanging out with these people. They, they weren't like Dylan. I mean, she loved Dylan, but Dylan was Dylan was Dylan. Dylan was mm. you know on this pedestal. Um, so she. I think she got a lot from that experience of working with these people, and they were all older guys as well, older men, and and um, and people as well, like Alex Campbell and Diz Disley. I mean, just these these fantastic characters who were on the folk scene. So to have gone through that experience, I think really kind of I think made her in a sense. And, so, and, and and then and then in a way, she kind of falls into this. This group called Fairport Convention. And, so, uh, but by the time she meets, she joins Fairport. She's written. Who knows where the time yeah. goes? <coughs> so, how old was she when she wrote? Who knows where the time she goes? She was eighteen, nineteen. Yeah, she's a late teenager. So it's a song about the passage of time. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's, an in, it's yeah. like Jackson Brown wrote these days, yeah. didn't he? When he was yeah. fifteen yeah. or something. Yeah, like. yeah. And how does that happen? Inspiration. Yeah. 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 And, and yeah. they, they the must muse. Be, seriously, they must be very special people to be able to do that very at the age of special. fifteen or yeah, eighteen. Very special, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. did they? Yeah. Were you aware of that at the time? Um, dealing with her as I a musician, I, I realised what a great song it was the first time she sang it to me. But which so was she sang how it I to you? It. Yeah, she sang it to me. I mean, she may have played it to the others first, but I mean, I just happened to be getting. Can you to, remember where you I, were when? Yeah, she, I can on. clearly remember that. I was. It was just after she joined the band, and it was in the summer of that year. And um, I felt that, you know, I was, I was free that afternoon and I just wanted to get to know her a bit better because, you know, I was sort of in the band and she only just joined. And uh, I went round to... I dropped in on her and she was at the time living in a Muse flat off Gloucester, off, just off the Gloucester Road. And it was a sunny summer's afternoon and the windows were open upstairs in her bedroom. She was sitting on the bed, so was I, and she was singing me this song. Um, in a very sort of uh, yeah yeah I've written this you might like this but it wasn't in a sort of you know she wasn't just sort of got the guitar at the case and said we're going to sing you this it was like which just came as a result of a conversation that was ongoing um, and I think Paul Simon had been there the night before but anyway that's another story but <laughs> I remember this that moment and thinking yeah that that really is a strong song but I didn't contextualise the lyric and say this is a song of a you know somebody looking back down a life this is an observation from a situation of maturity and great wisdom this was I didn't understand that at the time and I didn't really to be honest with you I didn't really understand the song until I had the courage to take it on myself which wasn't until the 90s you know, when it was all... I mean, it was always going to be her song, and it still is to this day. But I love singing it, and people seem to enjoy it in the context of, of Fairport as it is now. Now, most of us go through life and never have anybody sing a song like Who, who Knows Where the Time Goes to us individually. And I just wonder what you say at the end of... Oh, that's quite good. Yeah, probably <laughs> Next, yeah. let's go yeah. for yeah. chips. Or Do you want another <laughs> cup of tea? Yeah. <laughs> So, Ashley, can you yeah. just talk a bit more about, about her qualities as a singer? Oh, because, yeah. you know, people applaud singers. They go, so-and-so can really mm. sing, particularly yeah. in the days of X Factor or whatever. Mm. Everybody equates it with power and sincerity and so forth. But what, what made her special and unique, would you say? 
I'm glad you asked me this because I believe that she's the best singer, the best singer of popular songs that's ever existed in England. Um, because, if for no other reason, she could sing anything. And I do mean anything. She could sing a blues, she could sing a rock song, she could sing with a whisper, a folk song. And always, always, she inhabited it completely. And she sat, she, you, you believed what she was singing. She was truly a great all-round singer. She could have sung anything. She could have sung cabaret songs well. Uh, there was just, I don't know, an inherent, um, inherent um, understanding of music. Um, she's, for me, the only true, really good uh, uh, British folk rock singer. Maddie is a great singer. June Tabor is a great singer. They're not folk rock singers. Sandy was the first and remains the best folk rock singer because she understood rock, she understood folk, and she sometime, somehow made it, you know... Yeah, that's so true because I mean, you've been working with Led Zeppelin and she liked Queen, I think, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's quite interesting that she really liked all those yeah. records. And oh, yeah. You can't imagine Maddie a, or Jack no, she no. being as convincing as that. And, and as a teenager, I mean, her first crush, pop crush, was, was Buddy Holly. And, and she loved Buddy Holly, she loved the Emily Brothers, she loved the Beatles. Um, but, you know, it's interesting what, what Ashley said because so many people, I mean, Dave Swarbrick, Shirley mm-hmm. Collins, they, they all said the same thing is that nobody could sing folk rock in the same way that Sandy could that, that she just had this ability to kind of throw her, head, throw her head back and just sing these songs a lot of which must have come from playing at those folk clubs without yeah. a microphone presumably yeah. and having to develop this huge projecting voice yeah I think so but you know and also having these guys to back her and having Joe to produce her and John Wood in, in such a sympathetic way so that basically um you know, they all just let it happen. They all just let her sing. And again, I mean, something that came up, and I don't know how many of the Fairport songs were like this, but you know, more often than not, the take that was used was the first or second take because she, you know, she she hated, re- you know, revisiting vocals. We all do, yeah. yeah. I mean, but John Wood, nice to hear his name mentioned because he was a, you know, Joe and, and John between them made up a fantastic double act of a production team because they each encouraged her in in their own way but John was um, the first person who pointed out to me the importance of understanding a performer or musician in front of the microphones their individual performance curve you know when they are comfortable with the song and then they they're reasonably happy with one and then the next one if nothing technical goes wrong that's the one one but they might want to go on and do another half a dozen you might want to encourage yeah. them to get, like, nowadays, just to change, do another one in the hopes of getting one little syllable tweak right. But in those days, you couldn't have the luxury of deconstructing a thing into a digit form and just, like, swapping that one syllable from, you know, take 16 into take one. But back then, he just understood that, and he was a great encourager. Like, as you say, many of the father figures in her early days... Uh, who were sort of ostensibly contemporaries, but they were encouragers and they were all a bit older than her. You know? yeah. 
And another characteristic is she doesn't have any kind of vibrato or, or any of those mannerisms. You know, when yeah. you hear um, singers and you can often hear phrases that they've simply just imported from somewhere yeah. else. Yeah. She, she just seemed to be completely her own unique voice. Yeah, I, I was going to say, melismatic is never an adjective I've ever heard associated with her. <laughs> no, 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 that's right. So what, what, was, the, what was her uh, the effect of Sandy Denny's entry into Fairport Convention? Um, you know it, the dynamic within the group. It, it wasn't always easy, was it? No, but it just, <laughs> generally speaking, it, it just made everything better. But yeah. we obviously had to. You know, it, it was unusual for a girl to be in a band. She wasn't, uh, despite her um, boisterous personality, she wasn't ever overconfident about herself, and. Uh, in those days, of course, there wasn't ever a question of having a separate dressing room for the girls, anything like that, places we were playing. It was like you're just in a van together and you're in a dressing room together and you're in a, you know, B&B together. If you're lucky, you're normally in the van on the way home, wherever it is, Newcastle, we can do that in a day, yeah. Um, yeah, it was difficult for her. And sometimes, you know, undoubtedly there were moments where... She kind of steered us in a certain direction because she was in a certain mood. But nobody complained. No. no. But she... she um, I mean, there were occasions where she didn't turn up and things. Is that, is that the case? Yeah, I mean... Um, All right. All right, here we go. Yeah. Edit. Edit. <laughs> <laughs> He's drooping. Smoothly done. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um... You know, yeah, no, Sa- Sandy was her own woman. Uh, big personality, big voice, big, not a big ego, only occasionally, uh, and big flaws, big, big, big flaws. But they were well compensated for by, you know... What flaws? You, <laughs> what sort of you want a list? Um, uh, uh, many people thought her flaws were, were, were fun, um, like she'd trip up on stage and start to tell a joke and then forget the the punchline or get that wrong or whatever um, uh, and then she would open her mouth and it was just fine you know so she was uh, schizophrenic in many ways um, and I fear that I think this is a question I'm going to ask later but we've moved seamlessly onto it I fear that she didn't become the massive success that she deserved to because partly of her flaws, her personal flaws, like she hated flying, absolutely could not fly, you know, had to be drugged out of her mind just to get on a plane, which meant she couldn't be a world artist. Um, other flaws? Well, she was fundamentally shambolic. I mean, yeah, she, she, she wasn't was. in control of the things around her, which everybody takes for granted, you know, like, yeah. oh, where's my coat? Where do I leave that? Oh, yeah. I haven't got my, what's it? Oh, yeah. we've we've gone without such and such yeah yeah. there was a lot of that going on she was disorganised <laughs> but, 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 you know, but they're just flawed I mean great artists are flawed how many great artists in, in all, all the different arts do you know who are nicely behaved and, and well together and so and so great artists are flawed but what I couldn't work out from reading the book was that she's very very driven 
to the point where, you know, when she's young, she's working as a, a, a nurse late night yeah. in the hospitals, and in fact, nicking drugs, I think, to keep her awake, to go to folk clubs and perform and come back the next day and be a nurse all day on two hours sleep. She's so driven to, get, to want to get there and to want to perform. And as you were saying, when she actually is on stage and singing, she's completely in control of this moment. Oh, yeah. And yet, left uh, the, the Straubs and left uh, Fairport Convention... Um, without any kind of destination, without any kind of plan, as far as I can see. And so yeah. I couldn't really understand what... Uh, there's another point. Well, it's a quote from her, actually, when she says, if I found myself in the limelight, it's not because I was working towards it myself. So I couldn't quite understand what... it was. She was like someone who wanted success, but when she found success, she found it difficult to handle, but she also, as I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment, found it very difficult to handle life when she hadn't got success. So this is a terrible lose-lose situation. And I couldn't quite fathom what kind of girl would end up in that position. I I just didn't know what what was driving her, actually. Well, it didn't help the drunk, the drink and the drugs. The drink and the drugs didn't help, but but, I mean, it's just, as I say, it's just big, big flaws. Not everybody is like maps there and you know what am I going to be doing in 10 years time they don't ask themselves that question all the time and Sandy certainly didn't so she just um, followed her heart you know she relied on gut instinct rather than forward planning and uh, that inevitably means you know come to a fork in the road and you stand a 50-50 chance of getting the better of the two options and you know until you've made that choice you don't know really you just want to go I I'm going to go eeny, meeny, meeny, that way. I mean, and she invariably took the wrong fork. That's right. Well, that's, well you that's, could argue we, she it's took easy the for wrong us to fork. say now, but we don't know um, really what would have happened if she'd taken the other option. If she'd, no. if she'd stayed in Fairport after, you know, Legion Leaf lineup had established itself, and, she, you know, I think her leaving was probably a large contributing factor to, to Ashley deciding to leave shortly thereafter because they didn't leave simultaneously. It was, like, close, but... You know, if she'd stayed in, then you know our musical history would have been very different, mm-hmm. without question. And, and also and another thing, sorry, uh, uh, Trevor. We mustn't leave Trevor Lucas, uh, who eventually became her husband, out of this. Who, who was an enormous influence on her. So mm. he would, he would de- help her decide on which path to take. You know, certainly with the solo albums that followed Fairport. Um, and whether he made the right decisions, that's up for debate, you see. But she was... Well, he's not here to answer for himself. No, bless, but, bless him. There was always this problem, which I think relates to something that Simon probably mentioned ages ago, that, that women joining bands were tended to be singled out as the kind of the lead yeah. focus. Yeah. And, and there was great you know, pressure or temptation to go solo, wasn't there? But I was very interested in your book. That I think Jerry Moss, out of, of A&M Records... Hears who knows where the time goes and goes. I want that voice. Uh, yeah, no, and that he's was, the person uh, who did quite well. Uh, Karen uh, Carpenter yeah. and Carol King. And, and by all accounts, he saw that. He spotted that when he heard the Straubs. Yes, not not that was pre-Fairport. So so um, there was always that. You know, you should go on your own. But, but she wanted to be in a group, didn't she? Well, that was. I think that was a big problem for her. That that she. She wanted the anonymity of being in the group, but at the same time, any group she was in, she was immediately the centre of attention. Right. And um, and and but then also, but also to a point where she she always surrounded herself with people that she knew and could trust. So, um, 
you know, and, and I think the whole thing, the whole relationship with Trevor is, is is really important because you know you can argue this is this is a bit putting it a bit glibly that to some extent she did leave Fairport uh, the first time to to be with Trevor, absolutely, and she rejoined Fairport for the same reason because by that time he'd become a member of Fairport, and she rejoined to be to be with Trevor again. And yeah. um, you're um, absolutely right. I mean, uh, you know. Ashley stresses her fear of flying and the fact that the Legion Leaf lineup was suddenly mushrooming and its, uh, you know, its, its profile was risen. It was beginning to look further afield. Certainly, the record company were well behind us and trying to boost our careers. Um, and that meant not just more flying; it meant more separation from Trevor, who was very much a centre of her life and a you know big influence, and remained so. So, you know, point is well made about him influencing her to rejoin in, in 74, 75, even though that was short-lived and, and <coughs> rather, you know, en passant. There's a point at which you can actually quantify her value when I think the, she's offered a £40,000 record advance, which was a huge amount of money at the time, when Fairport Convention would have got less than half of that. Would yeah, that have been right? Yeah. I think that's in the book. No, I think, I think this, this is what Joe says. But, 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 in, but again, you know, that, that offer was for her... And then Joe came back from America, by which time she'd formed Fotheringay, and she wanted no part of a solo deal. It had to be a Fotheringay deal. And also, which is very much of the times, it was a five-way split between all the members of Fotheringay. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I think a, a lot of her actions absolutely exasperated Joe at the time. You know, and he says, you know, he admits that, in a way, he... You know, he always had a problem with with Fotheringay, and part, in in a sense, part of that problem was that they weren't Fairport, and 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 I think, I mean, Fair, Fairport cast a long shadow, I think. And, well, she um, cast a long shadow in uh, my life, yeah, for, considering um, I was only sort of in harness with her for eighteen months. Yeah. But but you look at her through the seventies, and you know, she you know she she forms Fotheringay, then she leaves <clears throat> because she feels she. She, I think it's more. I think she genuinely believed at that point that she should go solo, uh, and then within a year and a half, two years, Trevor joins Fairport. So immediately the pull of Fairport is back, and then the Fairport experience the second time around, you know, wasn't really the success that I think everyone hoped it would be. And you know, to some extent, I think Ireland thought, great, you know, she's back in Fairport. Her solo career's not working. Their career's floundering at that point. You know, it seems like this this incredible opportunity. But the moment are gone. The moment are gone, and it's not even that they made the wrong record. They kind of made a record that was probably sort of ahead of its time. I mean, I think Bruce, Bruce Rowland, the drummer, said, said something along the lines of, "You know, it was the first Fairport album that you could consider was product," which is a really dirty word in some ways. <laughs> But it was product. But people didn't want product from Fairport. They wanted, they wanted a mixture of Swarve doing jigs and reels, and you know, and, and they wanted the, the, you know, what Fairport had been for the previous yeah. four or five years. A lot more rough hewn. Um, a lot more rough hewn. Not not a kind of almost like a a version of Fleet with Max Rumors before. Yeah, it was, I mean, before that, was it a, that was a Glyn Johns Glyn production, Jones, yeah. and I, you know, I, I must say that this all happened off my watch that whole period because I was out from 72 to 75 but uh, you know I watched it with close interest and indeed you know remained very strongly in touch with the individuals concerned and went to I mean I remember a couple of times Sandy and I went to gigs together to see 
the the then Fairport lineup. Yeah. You know, we had a great time. But <laughs> what was that like? That was a strange experience to there watch. Was, the, there was how did it you was feel? it was lovely. I thought you know, but I just stood back and, and I, oh, it's my mates playing on stage. So, yeah, aren't I they good? You know, yeah. and let's go back to the dressing room and finish their fridge. Tune that mandolin. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Now they're on Which stage. Sandy and I, yeah, Sandy and I would would you know she completely would hoover, that quite We hoovered out that fridge. <laughs> Now the close, the closing bits of the book, the closing section of the book, you know, and it, it can't help being. Oh, that's a heartbreaker. It, 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 it really absolutely is absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. Were you yeah. surprised yourself, Mick, when you went and looked into this? Because you talk to everybody. Yeah. Extraordinary range of I, people. I, I think and in they're, a way they're, they're pretty much unanimous, aren't they? And on, the, on their view of of that decline yeah. and that. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about that. Explain um, what happened because she's. You know, Terrible drinking problems and drug problems and the life around crop weeded. Everyone rather get to the point where they're avoiding so, but, her. But, but, I, but I think it's just a, it's one of those situations where it, it's no, it's, it's just a whole series of events and a whole series of circumstances, which, um, you know, and, and and I think to some extent when when, you know, and, you know, I think Trevor was in this really invidious position to some extent because, you know, they'd married by that point. He was. Producing her, kind of managing her up to a point. Um, I don't think the Fairport experience rejoining was a particularly happy one. Um, her solo career was just not happening, uh, and I think all these things were kind of eating away at her. And um, I think, to some extent, you know, at that point she, you know, she became pregnant. She t- decided to have a baby, and. And had been told, can I interrupt for a mm. Had been told, which I never knew when she was about 17, that she would never be able to conceive. Am I right? This was something that actually turned up in, in Dave Cousins' autobiography, uh, and I'm not sure how... Well, you re- you've re- included it in your book. I, I did. I mean, true. no, I think, I, think I, I was able to include it because it was something Falling, that, the that, that Dave had on said. And, and, and she did have, and I think I played this down a little, I mean, I think she did have a series of abortions through, throughout her life. But I think the problem was when she did have a child, um, I mean, you were probably there at the time. She, she couldn't cope. <laughs> Not all the way no, through. No, no, no. no, no, no. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you delivered the baby. Sorry. You know, she couldn't cope with... She just couldn't cope no, with mother. But uh, you're right in that it was, uh, it was obviously a conscious decision to, to see this one through, as yeah. it were. And there was a kind of sense at the time that her marriage to Trevor wasn't, you know... Was was rocky to use a oh, cliche. She was in a, she was in a terrible place yeah. all the way through the, yeah. the pregnancy. I mean, she I mean, she suffered, you know, the the, the the vomiting thing and all that, you know. But she was just a mess, and she didn't she didn't mend her ways in any way because, of like, knowing that she was pregnant, she you know, there was still this rift and mistrust between her and Trevor, and she wasn't in a great place to be um, nurturing. A fetus, as Georgia herself proved by getting out the hell out of there as soon as she could. I mean, she was at the time she was the the, the smallest surviving baby born at the John Radcliffe, which is yeah. a centre of you know of you know nuptial care, baby yeah, care. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. She was like smaller than the bag of sugar, yeah, and she would, didn't come out of the incubator for months and months. Yeah, I mean, one of the extraordinary things this trip. I mean, sadly, she's not here tonight. But Georgia came out. Georgia's been over, and, and how old is she now? Georgia's now late forties now. Mm, late, late seventy-seven. Born in seventy-seven. 
Yeah. 38. 38. 38. 38. 38. 38. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and she more, I mean, she's fantastic. And, and um, she more or less admitted to me that it's only in the last few years that she's been able to sort of process the whole, the whole situation of being, of being Sandy Denny's daughter and, and, and having and a mother that, I mean, she was only uh, seven or eight months old when Sandy died. And then, you know, she was brought up by Trevor and uh, Elizabeth, his, his new wife. And, then, and Trevor died when she was 12 years old. <coughs> and she's gone... It's only now that she's, she's been able to kind of process the whole situation of, of who she is and who her parents are. And I think she's found it really difficult until yeah. now. And, and, and one of the great moments for me was, was meeting her. And she'd only just been given a copy of the book and she was just really moved by it and just, just she was kind of thanking me for having written it I mean she hasn't read it but she was thanking <laughs> me for having written it you know. I was going to say you know, she, have you heard from <laughs> no, her since she read yes, no, no, I'm no. sure it's a terrific book but, um, no I just wonder seriously how somebody feels when they're, when they're reading about their young life in, in a book like that I mean, it, it must be so difficult when she does read it. To, 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 I'm sure she knows this already, but as you say, she, you know, she did everything you shouldn't do. In, in well, Sandy left her in a car. And, and then, you know, just all these terrible yeah. stories. But, yeah. uh, but I think that, that's the awful thing about her life at the end. That, that's, you know, that's how, that's... <laughs> she just couldn't cope, I don't think. And, and, Not at all. Um, but yeah. I, don't, I don't think it was it was the pregnancy or uh, you know any one single factor. It was all just a sort of weight getting, you know, eventually there's yeah. the last straw. But it was it was just tragic. How, but but how I mean I think she she didn't seem at any point to sort of have the light go on and think I must turn this round. I must turn this round. So I was I was always amazed if you know she completed a journey in her car, you know, and got home somehow because she was you know completely off her face a lot of the time mm. and just blithely jump in the car and try and steer her way back through the Oxfordshire Northamptonshire lanes yeah, and she had this incredibly distinctive green Volkswagen with red hubcaps or the other way around no, it, had orange, it, had, orange. it was green but it had orange wings, orange wings. <laughs> you, could, you couldn't no. mistake it and, 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 and the villagers would see it coming and they'd sort of immediately yeah. jump out <laughs> was, dive under hedges no. <coughs> like we parked in the nearest ditch you know, it's unbelievable no. how but, fortunate but, she was not to have killed herself yeah. in that car so, I mean, uh, no I was say it's, it's terribly sad and, and I think what's even sadder is that just everything that happened um, I mean, to, to, to one of the things I, I, I was really pleased about with the book is that I've been given these interview transcripts of a, from her father. And, I mean, the, the, you know, the poor man, you know, Sandy died. His son died. His son died two years later. And his son died in sort of, not in similar circumstances, but Neil flew out to Colorado where he'd been in a car crash. And his son was in a coma and he dies the next day. And then three months later his wife dies and his brother dies and this poor man then uh, I think lived uh, for another 10-15 years you know just just with 
I don't know. I don't know how you get through that person. <laughs> I hope I never so, find out. You don't pull any punches, Mick, in the book. Not that it's no, you know, sensationalist. I don't think you need to. You don't need to. The simple facts um, are it, just extraordinary. Yeah, there's no need to kind of dramatise her, no, no. her, her story throughout. I mean, including you know, when you guys are involved. It's, it's just... <laughs> It's an extraordinary story. And, it is. Um, it is. So, so uh, Simon, just going back to Fairport for a moment. So you said you left when? 70... You, you were away for... 4th between... of December 1971. <laughs> right, OK. And you were away... What happened on that day that's made it so memorable? Uh, well, I was just... I, I'd made the decision back in um, really? the late summer of that year. We were on tour in America. And uh, I just sort of was playing something in the middle of Sloth. I remember it being in San Antonio, Texas, and uh, I was sort of halfway through this piece and and I just sort of suddenly looked around and thought, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go home, please. Um, I've done this now. You know, that's five years out of my life. I've been doing this. I'm still only 21. (laughs) No, I'm still only 20. Yeah, I was 20. But I've been doing it for a quarter of my life. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, well, <coughs> no, I th- I, it's time to get off the boat. But obviously I couldn't just, like, walk off stage, shut my guitar case and go home. Chris Blackwell happened to be out on tour with us, which was a very rare appearance for, of him on, on the road. But because he was holding the reins of the record company, which had sort of supported us more than anybody else financially, even though there was not a great deal of communication with him directly, I had to address the the topic with him so um, we had a little chat and he understood straight away that I was serious so you know I wanted out of Fairport I was the last original if you want to say member still remaining you know Richard had left months previously and we'd gone down from a five piece to a four piece deciding that that was the best way <laughs> to proceed um, I just felt my time was was sort of done here and I you know time to open another door uh, whether it was musical or something completely different didn't really matter to me. But, you know, we agreed that, oh, no, you, you know, you've got a commitment here, you know, the band's got to finish this tour, and then you've got this other UK tour coming up in November. And I said, well, that's absolutely fine. You know, I, you know, I talked it roughly through with the guys, so we knew we were on safe ground there and on all fronts. So I just agreed to finish the tour, and that was at the National Stadium in Dublin that day. But we parted on excellent terms, and again, the band didn't have any sort of call on my time or demands on me to say, well, you've got to do more than this. You know, and they didn't really know what they wanted to do. But uh, before they got their wagons in a circle and rebuilt the band without a guitarist, because um, there wasn't a singer at the time, I mean, Sorb did all that, um, DM decided to follow me. You know, he didn't want to be involved in rebuilding the band, so suddenly the band became... This twosome, you know, <laughs> the gruesome twosome. Such a rickety table you know, here. <laughs> yeah. You know, the Peg and Swarbrick uh, axis was there cemented, and they, they moved on through a various number of tryout lineups, um, um, but the- all of them a bit ragged and, uh, you know, not built to last until the Fairport 9 lineup came together, by which time DM was back in the fold, and they'd made some. Very striking records in between, like Rosie, I think, has is, is, uh, got some really beautiful moments on it. Um, but yeah, the nine lineup was 
significant because it did actually last quite a bit and they made a wonderful album in the self-titled Nine record uh, and did some memorable shows. And then, and then kind of broke up in, what, 76, 77? Is well, it? it broke up sort of kind of. It went back down to a twosome again. Right. Ahead of the uh, the, the Got La Gear record, which was made in 70, late near yeah, mid seventy five, I think. Might be wrong on the date, but about then, anyway. But I was I'd I'd done some gigs with Sorb and Peggy as an you know acoustic trio called the Three Desperate Mortgages, <laughs> which, <laughs> which never a truer described us perfectly, and uh, that was a lot of fun because they were just like big folk clubs. And uh, it was a bit sort of laissez-faire, but a lot of fun. I'll say. (laughs) You know, I I hesitate to remind myself I used the word shambolic about Sandy a few moments ago because shambolic was, you know, would have been a good sort of strap line to that line. Actually, I'm I'm interested because, you know, you left the same time as Sandy in 69. How did did you view the whole kind of Fairport experience? Over the hill and far away, that's where you viewed it from. (laughs) Do you think you'd still be talking about it now? No. Um, uh, no, absolutely not. Um, you know, we were, we were teenagers. Well, I was just out of my teens, but we were teenagers when we started. And you don't think about what's it going to be like in two years' time or whatever. I mean, I'm reminded this, uh, luckily, by my son, because my son is just 23, Blair Dunlop. Um, some of you might know him. And uh, I, I see in Blair what I was and everything he's going through, I went through. And to get Blair to think about what he's going to do next month is impossible. And we must have been like that as well. He's nodding. Yeah. Uh, not Blair, for the <laughs> listeners. That's Andy nodding in the audience. Um, no, you didn't think about what you were going to be doing. No, um, no. No, but the notion, you know, it's a band that in one shape or form has been going for nearly 50 years. Yeah, right? yeah, amazing. I mean, that's, you know, even kind of jazz bands didn't last that long, did they? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Even the, the Grateful Dead that, didn't last that long. Sorry? Even the Grateful Dead didn't no. last that long. <laughs> I think we've got do you, a, do you ever sit around and kind of, do you ever look around? Is there a chart anywhere where there's other no, groups like the Four no, Tops no, or whatever that have been do going Do you think from? we have to credit... The audience, the followers oh, of Fairport. Uh, th- without the loyalty that, uh, Absolutely. that... that All the way down through the generations of people who've discovered Fairport, you know, they go from people of our contemporary age, people who are, you know, pensioners now, um, right down to... Um, I mean, without that loyalty... Um, the other big factor, of course, is property, but that's another story. But, but yeah, without that loyalty and interest and continuing... Uh, somehow or other... It is, you look at the field, you know, singing Meat on the Ledge at the last moments of property each year, and there's 20,000 people in front of you, and they're all singing it back at you. And you think, somehow or other, this band has reached into each and every single life in front of you and made some connection. They, all the connections are going to be different. They're going to occur at different times in people's lives. They're going to be, you know, all over the world. They're going to be... In, but anyway, there's some kind of direct connection, and and yet that the ones who are still there obviously haven't lost that sense of fealty or belonging, um, and it's something you can't create deliberately. It's something that happens, that creates around you, and it's uh, something I'm massively energised by and, and hugely proud of. And but it's it happening. It's happening it, again, again this year. Well, 
Of course it is, and it will carry on happening until the year it makes a loss, but, you know, because it, it has what, to stand on its own feet. What are the other songs apart from Meat on the Ledge? That were, I was just reading an interview with Richard Thompson not long ago where he said that his, his own mother had written into her will, do you know this, that she wanted him to play that at her funeral? Yeah. yeah. That's wonderful. I think he said it's the single hardest. It's the hardest thing he'd ever had to do. Wonderful. Yeah. What are the other songs that, that, that mean the most? I'm sure we can probably guess what they are. Well... <sighs> Well, I mean, so we see the ones, the ones that spring to mind first are the ones that have been in the repertoire the longest. So, obviously, Meat on the Ledge goes back to 68, yeah. yeah. the second album the band made. But, obviously, the, the, the core of the old repertoire is enshrined in Legion, Legion Leaf, you know, without question. I mean, some of those songs have never, you know, never gone away. Some of them have yeah. many years off and then come back to... You know, make their presence self like like Tam Lin is a good case there because it's just a very complex and difficult song, um, but it'll go away for like twelve years at a time, then come back yeah, yeah. and say hello again for a couple yeah, of years, and then go it. away again. Yeah, but, I think there's a comment yeah. when when Sandy did her final tour, she told one journalist, "If I ever have to sing Matty Groves again, I'm going to jump out the jump well, out of the window." I I don't share that opinion. <laughs> I've I must have sung that song, at, you know, uncountable times. And uh, it's never been the same twice to me. Yeah. It's never. No, I, I, been, I'm sure that's, that's a clear comment. It's valid, you know. I, I'm, my biggest fear, all the way through the latter stages, when I say the latter, I mean probably the last twenty years of Fairport's existence, is that we become our own tribute act. You know, that is the, the dreadful fear. You know, if we just become. <sighs> nothing it, wrong with people making it, a living it, out of music, it, it, playing music that people want to hear. But I don't want to sort of go through the motions and present songs as closely representative of the way they were when they were recorded by a bunch of young people. Yeah. Are there any Fairport tribute bands? Um, uh, and if well, so, why I've not? Got a great why name not? If there if is, what are they called? You know. Let's try and make well, some up. Uh, Carport <laughs> Extension is my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> No, airport, <laughs> airport confusions in there. Yeah. Oh yes. I think on that point, actually, we'll uh, we'll draw to a close. May there be many more years of crop running and Fairport Convention and Ashley's works and Dick, which are on sale, as he's yeah. pointed out over and, in the corner. Uh, the Fairport website is live. All the w's.fairportconvention.com. There you and go. News of this year's upcoming crop running convention, which is on August the thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth this year. Well done. I, 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 I want to know which of you put a tenner on Fairport, Fairport lasting fifty years. Um, I, it hasn't yet. No, no okay. it's still time. You wouldn't get such but good I'm, odds I'm, now. I'm fairly so. focused on the idea of, of managing another two years and a bit. You know, I want to get my gold watch. Okay. <laughs> and the, thank you very much, Simon Nicholl, Ashley Hutchins. We should thank Mick, uh, Mick for his fantastic book as well. Thank you for coming. Who'd like to hear another one of Ashley's reflective, oh, right, and beautifully oh, written so observations? It, it wasn't me that said, hey, no. I didn't. He said to it's, me, it's you a great, read another one. He's a great writer. i tell you what I'll read. A very short one. You've got to go. Right, OK, fine. <laughs> but uh, got to sell some more books, actually. <laughs> Are we just going to go to the fact. loo? <laughs> it was only, it's only a sonnet. It's only going to take 15 seconds. <laughs> God's sake. Um, Have you got any haikus? <laughs> <laughs> 
maybe, maybe this, although it's slightly sombre, uh, about two thirds of the way through, um, whatever two thirds of the way through 14 lines is, um, uh, it probably it rounds off the, the evening in a way because it's, it, it's, it's about then and it's about now. It's a sonnet I wrote about Grace Slick. Now, Grace Slick, some of you might not actually know Grace Slick. Grace Slick, we absolutely adored. She was the lead singer of Jefferson Airplane, the American San Francisco band. Oh, my God. The American Fairpool Convention, in fact. Um, yeah, we were called... I've, I've still got her in my screensaver. <laughs> good man, good man. No, we all love Grace. Uh, great voice, uh, great person, political activator as well. And um, I saw her on TV in 87, and I wrote this. And suddenly you burst upon the screen, electric, in electric blue, and bearing little sign of mellowing, a mean, wide streak of blue rebellion in your hair. That rebel yell as potent now as when it heralded experimental thought and deed. That enterprising starship then, by all that's good, how could it come to naught? The rot, perhaps it's true, could not be stopped like thinning hair, a thickness at the waist, or rigid lines drawn down the years that cropped up in the most unblemished face of grace. Today, by chance, I came upon my youth, rebellious, proud, and just a bit uncouth. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you to everybody for coming. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. (laughs) 